welcome, my internet friends, to Defeasible Reasoning, a podcast about things and security and stuff. And that's about as fine-tuned as we've got it at this point. We're broadcasting to you, not live, from the Grand Rapids Community College Center for Cybersecurity Studies Media Services Building. I am joined today by Matthew Matt Carpenter, a principal researcher at Grimm. Is it Grimm Cyber these days, or is it just Grimm? It's Grimm. Uh, actually, the official name is different. Grimm's a DBA, but Grimm is it. Gotcha. Just Grimm. And cool. Sorry. We own Grimm.rip. Nice. Yeah. I didn't realize that RIP was a thing. It just became. We were just whining about how using um, non, you know, .com, .edu, .org domains get things bounced back to you quite a bit and scare <laughs> most of the security products that exist in the world. I use a .ma address for things, and you'd be surprised how few people, like an email from a .ma address gets to. Let me, as usual, introduce the, the third person in the room, executive producer slash co-host, Noda Smith. What's up? There we go. <laughs> what is a what is a day in the life of a principal security researcher look like? What's what is your day job these days? Which day? To not so today, because today you're doing the podcast thing, so that's probably not typical. So I've been at the company about five years, and a day in the life has changed every year, sometimes by the month, sometimes by the day. I'm going to compress a week into a day because because it, it varies. What I try to make sure that I that I get to is plenty of technical playtime. Now I call it playtime, but it's billable work. It, it's good stuff, but I love it. It's enriching to me. Um, and what's an example of billable working? Your hardware, software, firmware, reverse engineering, radio stuff, vulnerability yes. research. So uh, can you give us a generic project? You know, I don't want you to break any NDAs here, but like yesterday, for example, uh, I'm reverse engineering uh, an Android app that relies heavily on uh, Android native code that is a portable library that also runs on OS X. It also runs on Windows. Um, oh, so like one of those, we teach a course using this thing called AppCelerator that's like a JavaScript framework that'll cross-compile all those things. So this was written for Windows, and then they they modified it to make an app, and what they did was they took all the, the disparate libraries that they have on their Windows system, including, and then wrapped in libc and a bunch of other libraries, and they made one portable library that's like crazy huge oh wow so if there's a vulnerability in any of those libraries they get to go back in rebuild their library and but it's one library it is it is one it's like one library to rule them all 80 megabyte library it's crazy but uh, i've got a very large project of which i can only say pretty much that I'm reverse engineering a bunch of different components. There's a hardware component, and I get to choose which areas to focus on to get to the answers that I'm after. And in this case, the Android native library was was the most easy. Right, because I, did, I, I imagine if you have an, you know, you, you compiled this Uber library a year ago, eight months ago, I can just go find any of the public vulnerabilities in any of those sub-libraries and say, ha ha, mm -hmm. I have you now. So... When I think of reverse engineering, I'm imagining somebody finding a downed drone mm -hmm. and then like taking it apart to understand how it works and maybe build it themselves. <clears throat> how do how would that apply to software? How would you reverse engineer software? So reverse engineering is a concept that plays throughout the computer security realm from the photons and electrons all the way up to large user interfaces on a Windows machine or a mega monitor. So with hardware, you take a look at what's actually on the board or boards if they're connected together. 
and on the board you may have chips that you can go research a computer chip like an arm chip or a renesas sorry i told you i wouldn't swear um and the traces that connect all the chips there may be eproms or flash chips things that uh, you may be able to pull data off of or modify data without even having to dig into how everything else works you just poke onto this chip pull it off look at what the information is and change it then you move up the scale a little bit to software or firmware reversing so the code that actually gets put on these chips uh, it is called firmware if it's looking at stuff that's running on your laptop or server is called software it's all just code that's been compiled down to interface with something so software reverse engineering takes two major paths one path is reverse engineering a windows binary or a mac binary or a linux binary or something that lives on some major operating system so like qnx when I, when I click on word.exe that exe is a binary and that's what you're reverse engineering exactly so your word.exe uh, your kernel 32 dll things that things that live in an operating system the other path for firmware is called raw firmware where firmware has been compiled it, it is one application that has been compiled down for a specific chip and the code that gets that gets compiled in there actually knows how the chip works and the chip may have a network interface connected to it and that's on some port with these parameters and so the firmware itself will configure that network adapter and then talk directly to the buffers that handle the the things things that the operating system masks from you basically hmm. so that's where i spend a lot of my time between those two things and the hardware side don't get me started on radio i, I love radio We'll try not to. And right now, since the FCC is not actually doing their jobs at this point, I mean, if you wanted to screw around with radio frequencies, nobody's going to stop you. <laughs> Literally zero regulation going on right now. The, um, so that sort of reversing work, uh, Grimm is not just a West Michigan concern, right? Most of you guys have like um, offices in sort of the, the D.C. area corridor, Crystal City, you know, where the big government contracts are because there's only so much reverse engineering steel case needs done so grim started as a couple of intelligence community people came together saying let's start a small company because these big mega defense contractors they do great they do awesome work but it kind of sucks to work with them <laughs> um, as any large multinational can, can cause so started off with three intelligence community people and we drew more and so there's a lot of there's still a lot of ties into dod intelligence uh and so that's where the skill set was developed now i live here bryson the the founder of grim said i want you to lead the critical infrastructure embedded hacking team and so i've been building out an, an exploitation team focused on embedded systems uh critical infrastructure uh, my critical infrastructure meaning like power grid and dams mm. and okay. water and yeah or like water critical treatment. critical <laughs> yeah everything that that depends on computers and, and hardware type things so we have another team that focuses on servers and laptop type stuff so it's not that we don't have the skills it's that this is where our focus is so i've, I've ended up hiring some very special unicorns that have embedded development engineering backgrounds that understand vulnerabilities and exploitation so because to to do really quality reverse engineering work it helps to have done first forward engineering work so you kind of know what you're looking for 
or looking at. Right. So I'll, I'll look at a disassembler and I can tell that this information is being pushed into this register here and this register here and that register there are being used to multiply something together. I can do all that. But if I've written C code specifically, and even more so if I've written C code for embedded systems. Or for like this particular chip that we're trying to figure out what's going on or that whatever. Right. Yeah. Then I, I immediately can say, oh, wow, this chunk of code is doing this thing that I've already done myself when I've programmed. So. Right. So you have you have like seen that process from the developer side and kind of have an idea of what to look for. Because when a computer compiles code down to something that when your when your software program compiles code down to something that the computer can use, it takes out all that useful human stuff like variable names and mm. functions and all that jazz. So when you're looking at it after it's been reverse engineered, kind of a pain to try and figure out what is this loop doing over here particularly if you like never bothered to write a loop that does that kind of stuff sure so i look for other people crazy like me where <laughs> this particular flavor of crazy. i would prefer to look at disassembly if you gave me source code and compiled code i would look at the compiled code first huh. i find that far more telling you can't lie to me if you ever looked at the source code for the linux kernel you can tell c lies to you <laughs> quite often so the things that I get from the source code, though, is comments and variable names and things that, that allow me to take the logic that I'm looking at and put the thinking of the developers behind it. Gotcha. Hmm. So sort of to what end um, do you reverse engineer these things? So is it to discover problems that might be like, like a company who has created something asks you to, can you reverse engineer this and make sure there's no problems? Or is it a company that's requesting, hey, we want to make something that's like this. Can you reverse engineer this so we can make something like that? So Grimm has had two primary guiding stars since the very onset. One, make the world a better place. Two, be an attacker for everything that we can. So we use the attacker mindset and the reverse engineering skills to make the world a better place. Now that may look like uh, a, an automotive OEM coming to us saying, hey, hack our car. And we've done that many times. Now, what level, I mean, the next question is, what level of hacking do you want us to do? Do you want us to do hmm. some assessment of your design? Do you want us to tear apart your hardware, tear apart your firmware, things like that? Gotcha. And there are other purposes that make the world a better place that uh, may be not in that direction. It's kind of subjective to what exactly it is to make the world a better place. It, There's always going to be somebody some who hates me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, you, uh, how did you get from into this business? Like what got you here? It, it looked like I was perusing your CV and at one point you were teaching for SANS way back in the day. Were you doing like the, the week long, yep. I show up on Monday in a hotel and I stay there till Saturday afternoon. And I had, my dad worked for IBM. I had a computer when I was seven programming hmm. when I was eight, uh, pissed off all my computer science instructors all through high school and college. Are you from Grand Rapids? I'm from Flint. Okay. That that's my background. I've been programming and loving computers ever ever since I was able to even think about. Comp sci degree, took a job in engineering and in instructor. And I was actually trained to teach Novell because Novell Novell really put you through the ringer and it was a great experience. Oh, you mean to <clears throat> I'm sorry, back when the, the Novell certifications were a thing, that kind of teach for Novell? Yeah. Oh wow. So teaching Novell, teaching Microsoft, and I moved very quickly into the network engineering roles and then i took a job at amway corporation doing a lot less stressful work and 
a lot of fun supporting global trade and then moving into telecom and then finally into their security department. In 04, my, my manager said, I want you to go take a SANS course. And said, uh, and I said, was it so, in Grand Rapids? No. Okay. They actually sent me to it. Gotcha. So, <laughs> like, that's that was what got me into security too was a SANS course. And it was one of the ones that somebody was doing a uh, boot camp in Grand Rapids. Sure. So, that was like the thing that turned me on. And right around that time frame too. So, so my thing was, uh, I went to the boss and said, so there are two courses that are interesting. One is this telecom focused thing, uh, AAA server, VPN, firewalls, which I'd been doing already professionally. And this other one, the Hacker Techniques Exploits and Incident Handling course that- That sounds like real would fun. Be interesting, I think it'd be very beneficial. And he said, think outside the box. So what did I do? I went and sounds I- Sounds like a good boss. I got to, I got to meet uh, Ed Scotus and take his, uh, his Hacker Techniques course. Incident handling is actually the, the focus, but hacking, to get the skills to do incident handling is right. basically how it rolls. So at that point, I, I had figured out that this capture the flag thing was a lot of fun, and I could throw exploits that uh, that take over computers and do a lot of fun things. And then the next year, I ended up thinking that I could do the DEFCON CTF, and well, that was a very very different animal. Uh, but I decided after giving up for about six hours, I, I decided, well, let's give it a try. And threw my threw my weight into uh, figuring out how to reverse engineer software binaries, which I thought was like the, at DefCon that morning. You're like, damn, let me get the so they have a pre qualifiers. <laughs> <laughs> and my my in laws thought ahead and had already purchased uh, hacking the art of exploitation for me that Christmas before. Mm. So it, it was it was ripe, but I thought that that type of stuff was for immortals, <laughs> and so. When I was able to throw my first remote binary exploit that I had found the vulnerability, I had, just, I had put together the exploit to take over the remote machine, it occurred to me that I had been selling myself short. And this was freaking amazing fun. And so ever since then, that's about 15 years ago now, ever since then, I have found great joy in helping other people cross that bridge taking them from capable, but they won't let themselves think that they can to showing them that they have no idea what they're capable of. You know, it is easy to, to follow a checklist and, mm -hmm. you know, and for like network penetration testing, they like run, you know, the, the tool and mm -hmm. get reports back on which vulnerabilities exist and, and use the pre-canned exploits. But like yeah. when you are hitting that place where yeah. you are finding new things and doing new stuff that nobody's ever done before, it's an mm -hmm. amazing place to be. Well, so, I find that there... I'm going to dominate this. I'm sorry. I cut you off. Um, I, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> so, I, I find that there, there are two primary ways that, that people approach uh, hacking or pen testing. And one is, how do I do this so that if anybody comes back and asks me to, to, to defend it or review what I've done, I, that I, I'm making sure that I've done what other people might have done. And that so is a checked all the boxes. Basically. It's a fear based approach and it limits your success. I mean, you, you, may be, you may do a systematic attack, but there's an internal thing spinning, go, keeping you from your full potential. The other one is, I'm going to go find out what I can find out and respond to that and periodically pull back and do my own process, basically. And, and if I'm... If there's one thing that I found, there are so many people who are, who are afraid to go outside and do their own process... 
because they think that everybody else is doing it better and they want to not be able to, they want to be able to say that they did it like Charlie Miller or Dino Daisovi or, or, you know, big names, amazing people. But they didn't think, oh, what would Ed Scotus do or what would so-and-so do? They thought this stuff is right in front of me. Let's see what it wants. And they figure, they figure out from what's, what they're dealing with, they get to make up their own minds. Huh. So how do you deal with like the halting problem that goes along with that? Do you ever find that, that you can be, go down a blind alley and find out that it's <laughs> just an alley? And it's not, you know, the end result of where, you know, this path you're taking is not, oh, mm-hmm. I found a new and interesting vulnerability, sure. but I found, oh, this software is actually not particularly vulnerable in this particular place. When do you back off and, and try another, you know, turn in the, the dungeon? So my wife says that I, I have a web thinking mind. Um, and she says that she's a linear thinker. And so <laughs> the conceptual things are tied together in a big graph with nodes and edges. But the short answer is I take notes. I take notes of my path. I take notes of what I'm thinking. As I take notes, as I'm going down, it's an internal dialogue only in a VI or in, a, in some text editor where I'm typing out or I'm writing in a, in, a, in a logbook things that might be interesting, things that I'm thinking about because my brain is coming up with ideas that I don't have time to do. So I'll write down the stubs and I'll choose the one I think is best and I'll go down that thing. And periodically, maybe daily, maybe every other day or, or whatever, I'll reassess. I'll come back and say, how's it going? And I'll review my notes. I'll think because I always forget. There, there's a metric ton of stuff that I forget in a project. So I'll come back to my notes. I'll, I'll find a different path that maybe makes me happy. I'll, and I'll say, I'm going to go distract myself over here while this one stews. And so in having multiple threads spinning and, I switch in, and by switching between them, I feel the most comfortable that I'm going to find the best path open up fastest. Gotcha. So you sort of, sort of uh, background a task, let your subconscious kind of stew on whatever's yeah. going on back there, and then the foreground, um, whatever else is going on. It's a highly personal thing, though. If you asked several other people, they'd have their own I will. thing. <laughs> <laughs> it, connects, it connects well to, I noticed your handle on LinkedIn is curious with a K. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that was purposeful or not. I imagine it was. It wasn't just the random uh, string of, of characters that they gave you. And curiosity seems so important, not just in this field, but across all. And I wonder how important you think curiosity is in this particular field um, to, to have that curiosity to kind of go in different directions and think outside the box. It's vital. It's vital. At some point, you can you can do deductive reasoning. You've got to bring inductive in at some point. And in order to be inductive and deductive in a, in a meaningful fashion, you have to be curious. You have to wonder. I, I could spend my, the rest of my career reverse engineering this 86 meg binary that I'm hacking right now. But I'm curious, and I know that I'm not going to be able to do all of it, so I'll have to just kind of decide what things that I go poke at. I, th- I, I agree that like a serious part of this whole business i mean not just like binary reversing and that sort of thing but like the the whole security thing writ large there's so much like imposter syndrome if you talk Mm. to people because it's an overwhelming and daunting place you know you how long do you figure you're gonna spend how much more importantly like how long is your client going to pay you to dink around with their 86 (laughs) meg travesty of a library right um and and while doing that you're not out learning you know, whatever the latest 
vulnerability is in other thing X or or yeah. the you know all that other stuff that's out there that you have to worry about. Yeah, like this thread X. I've got four different articles left open in a web tabs to, to go research thread X because I, I just don't have the time. I want to I want to focus on where I'm where I'm at. Right, and you know what's what's paying mama's bills. You know, well, sure, sure, that's important too. So one last question, if we touched on this a little bit um, in our email before the show, hacker culture, is it just a filthy hive of scum and villainy where like we're a bunch of little boys who can't keep our stuff together? Or or do you think that there's like a big difference between red team types and blue team types? Wow, that's a long discussion. Uh, sum but, it up to 10 minutes. But to sum it up. So hacker culture, uh, there's a lot of crap in there. There always will be. Um, will there? But it's, yeah, sure. All right. But we're reducing the types and the impact of the crap. I mean, that's, that's I think, the best way that, that I can say that we're, we're trying to approach. So sexism. And in hostile environments, we're working on that. We're we're self policing and thumping down on jerks. But there's a there's a large part of hacker culture, and it and it generates a lot of greatness and a little bit of cruft, or a lot of cruft. But it is the the core of it is doubting my assumptions, not just accepting things for what they are, but pushing on them, questioning them fuzzing reality fuzzing the relationships between people relationships between people laws whatever and that's where defcon can be an amazing creative place and it can be some people a bunch of dude bros being jerks well, you, you see it attracts a lot of posers the idea of miscreant draws a lot of people so mm. the, the level of knowledge at defcon is actually very small but the idea of, of questioning everything, of discovering. It's the curiosity, again, playing out in mostly good ways when, when I'm around. At least that's what I see. Are you selective about who you're around? Yeah, there, there's douchey people that I'll, I'll ignore or move away from. But overall, again, I think that the DEF CON often is fairly self-policing. And there's more to hacker culture than DEF CON. Sure, sure. But it, I think that it's the pinnacle of it's the origin for a lot of hacker culture. Hmm. So here at GRCC, we have a a center for cybersecurity studies. We do indeed. (laughs) But do you have any um, advice or suggestions to students who are getting started in this? uh, And when they're thinking about their career, getting started, just any kind of simple uh, advice that they might want to think about as they're getting into this? Sure. Um, Allow your curiosity time, play around, get to know things. Don't, don't necessarily stop when you think that it's too hard. Look for some way to make a pattern from the chaos. The second thing, and, and you may edit this out later, but I'm a, I'm a Christian. And one of the things that, that I love in the Bible, it says, soberly assess yourself. Now that means don't think too highly of yourself. It also means don't let your self-doubt become the reality of who you are. And the only way that you can really do that well is by surrounding yourself with trusted individuals that you respect who can give you feedback and ask them for, for feedback. You know, say, am I, am I soberly assessing who I am, where I'm at? That can allow you to break through your own self-doubts into greatness. And the, and the last thing, don't be afraid of wasting time. 
I know time and money are the, the essence of, of, of what we have as resources. And if you have a lot of time, you probably don't have a lot of money. If you have a lot of money, you probably don't have a lot of time. But don't worry about wasting time when you're discovering, when you're curious, when you're learning, you're diving in and that makes me happy and it makes me feel very powerful. And indeed it has made me very powerful. Cool. It's a good place to end, I think. Thank you very much, Mr. Carpenter. I would love to have you back sometime. Thank you. To pick your brain even, even more. Sounds this great. has been yet another episode of Defeasible Reasoning brought to you by Greenwich Community College. Thank you to our guest. Thank you to Noah. And thank you to you, the listener out there in podcast land. We'd like to think of uh, us as not, maybe not your internet friends, but at least your, your internet pleasant acquaintances. <laughs> <laughs> Write an iTunes review for us. Drop a mic. The Feasible Reasoning is produced at the Epic Studios of Grand Rapids Community College Media Technologies Department. Epically executive produced by Noah D. Smith and hosted by me, Drew Rosemont.